Transferring wealth successfully starts with asking yourself questions that will give your family a better life now and for generations to come. In this podcast, financial professionals John and Michael from Copper Beach Financial Group guide you through eye-opening questions to help you discover the truth about your wealth. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to The Truth About Wealth with John and Michael Paris of Copper Beach Financial Group. Gentlemen, it's good to be back with you. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Eric. How are you doing, Eric? I am doing fantastic. Michael, I'm excited. We have a return guest on the show, multiple-time guest, Tim O'Rourke. Tim, welcome back. Hey, Eric. Good to be back, man. Thanks. I, uh, well, I didn't invite you, but the guys did. So, <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, we had to invite you. Twisted my arm. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad that they did. Guys, uh, what are we talking about today, As, a, as a, though I'm going to be surprised by this? And we're going to talk a little bit wine, obviously. But um, <laughs> if you remember the last podcast, Eric, we talked about certain regions. We talked about mm-hmm. France and Italy. So today we're going to focus on Spain. And the Tim is actually Tim was the one responsible introducing me to Spanish wines way back when because they're very cost effective, very high quality, and it's a region that most wine drinkers probably are not familiar with. But the quality of wine is outstanding, whether it's Spain, the Portugal. Michael and I have been to both those countries, and the wine is spectacular. The local wines that we tried there, especially the white. So, so today we're going to focus on Spain. And Tim, I know you know your stuff, so uh, I think we should just start with the country itself and how the wine started to grow there many, many, many years ago. And maybe just kick it off to you. Welcome, Tim. All right. Thanks, guys. You know, Spain is one of those places that is is not only, you know, uh, a great history, but intriguing how it all developed because the Phoenicians actually settled there. I think it was around uh, 2000, 1000 BC, somewhere in there. They're not sure exactly. History goes back three to 4,000 years before Christ was born BC and in the wines there are, um, you know, a lot of them are indigenous, but as, as you know, and we've discussed before, you know, they went over to France, like a lot of places and, and brought back the varietals from there and developed them, you know, because of the terroir from each of these wine areas is a very powerful influence on, on the grape varietals. So, mm-hmm. so as it all developed over thousands of years, they, uh, they made wine and in all over Spain. And if you look at Spain from a climate perspective, there's seven kind of primary uh, microclimates there. And so you've got a broad diverse diversity of areas that you can grow wine and altitude and, and soil and all kinds of things that have, you know, obviously a big effect on it. Um, you, you guys visited Portugal. I think you and and Mike were there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was in Spain without Michael, but we, we were together in Portugal, yes. Yeah. You were together in Spain. Up the Dora River. What a great ride that was. Right. Exactly. And yeah. and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of influence from that river actually in wine Beautiful. over the centuries. Uh, it's quite intriguing how that all fell into place. But if you remember, Portugal succeeded Spain, I think it was in the 1100s. I'm just doing this off the top of my head. Um, and, and so, Portugal kind of developed their own wines. And, and what happened is England, you know, always had something going on with France politically back thousands of years ago. And so they they basically stopped or, or didn't allow, uh, the English didn't allow any wine to be imported from France or tried to, you know, tax it so you couldn't afford to bring it in. So they went to Spain and Portugal became 
uh, as you know, with all their ports and fortified wines, they became very much entrenched in how do we get our wine, you know, because now we got a, a, a big customer over in England. How do we get our wine over there? So they fortified it, which means they added alcohol to it. So it would make the trip across the ocean. And that's kind of how that all developed. And then more Spanish wines also, um, you know, had to get to port because a lot of the wine regions are in central Spain and northwestern Spain. So they had to truck it over there to the boats and get it over there to England. So, so when you look at that history of how it all kind of developed, it was one out of uh, political and, and economic kind of necessities. And so Spain, um, they always, you know, the English control the prices over there. So Spanish wines historically have always been very affordable compared yeah, sure are. to other regions like Bordeaux or Burgundy, things like that. So uh, interesting past. But and, and, and I know that when we were there, and I, I know you'll get into the um, the regions and, and some of the wines, uh, we were fascinated by the port conversation because I'm not a port wine lover, but boy, I'll tell you why. There's a lot of famous wineries over here that do a lot of ports, so I'm sure you'll get into that. Yeah, and there's also a lot of, um, you know, Madeira. I mean, we, we could spend hours talking about just Portugal alone, just because of what they do and how they do it and the different grapes. The grape varietals are completely different. A lot of them indigenous, you know, to that region. But um, right, why don't we start with the white side of the fence and then we'll go to the red. Um, uh, okay. Michael, I really enjoyed the white wine from Portugal and I as well from Spain. So you want to start there and let's talk about that, that success of that white varietal. White wine in, in Spain, obviously, there's a whole different you know, kind of grape varietal that most people will never know what they are. Um, a lot of them are um, Grenache Blanc, Tempranillo Blanc. You know, Tempranillo is the main grape in all of Spain. It's, I would say, you know, my guesstimate is 70% of most of the wine there has some Tempranillo in it or some base of it. But you've got uh, Malvasia, Grenache Blanc, like I said, Tempranillo Blanc. Um, Maturana Blanc, Verdiel, whole, you know, words are, are basically grape varietals that none of us have heard much. Viera is probably one of the most popular ones. For yeah, that's Blanc. what we liked. Yeah, that was excellent. Yeah. It's very soft. That's a, a good way to explain it. The white wine in Portugal was very smooth and soft and had a great finish. Do you, do you find that to be true uh, on most of their wines? Yeah, actually, you know, a lot of it is, let's go back to the Chihuahua for a second. You know, the influence of the mild and the, you know, the, the characteristic of the wine is influenced by the acidity. So the, the, all these wine regions tend to have a lower acidity. And so it's, that's why, that's what you're describing, basically. Yeah. It gives it a, a softer kind of, uh, you know, less pungent kind of flavoring. Yeah, we uh, we really enjoyed. I, th I think most of the time, Michael, we had white when we were over there. Correct. We, the red wasn't necessarily our favorite, but the white was really yeah. exciting, especially with the uh, with the afternoon. Yeah, but reds are really the primary. Yeah, I mean, whites are great. It's kind of like Italian whites. You know, they're indigenous. A lot of the indigenous grape varietals over there in Italy um, are, are very popular to the locals, but they're not popular for exports. But when you get over there and drink them, like what you're talking about, it's like. Wow, I didn't know they had that. You know, that's pretty cool. Yeah, but the audience should try. I mean, you and I always talked about expanding our understanding of wines around the world. And I think the average person, as we've talked in the last podcast, really, you know, likes a certain wine and they drink it all the time. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I always enjoyed learning about different regions and trying different wines. And I'm always impressed by 
some of the wines I taste from all over the world, they just have a different quality and, and a different style to it. And I find the white from Portugal and Spain is outstanding. And I think uh, the audience should try and grab a bottle. I, do you have a recommendation, Tim, on uh, any white? I know that might yeah, I, 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 what I would suggest people to do, John, is look at uh, Ria, Rias Vaixas, which is the it's kind of in northwestern Spain, and they're known for their whites. And so I would say do uh, do look for some Alborinos. Al, yeah. Alborino is a kind of a stony, kind of like a burgundy stony kind of flavor to it with a little bit of fruit and salinity to it. So it goes good with like mussels or or different types now of, you're talking. of, you know, of, of seafood um, that I, and it's very affordable, you know, I mean, it's some really powerful stuff. So put down your glass of Chardonnay and step out on the plank a little bit and try a little. <laughs> exactly. <off of> <laughs> yeah. And Tim, I think you've mentioned the affordability of some of the Spanish wines, which I always, you know, as a somewhat of a wine novice, I've always, when I have Spanish wine, it always reminds me of more of an Italian wine. It has that same old world character as compared to, you know, a Cabernet from Napa Valley, as an example. Can you elaborate a little bit more on maybe sort of how the how the winemaking came from France, which I assume is where Spain kind of got a lot of their wine from? Because again, from an affordability standpoint, if you like that style of wine and you haven't tried a Spanish wine, I think that might be a good thing for you to expand your palate on. Yeah, good point, Mike. The so what happened back in the 1850s, much like what happened in Italy too, um, Michael, is is the some of the very wealthy wine people from Spain went over to Bordeaux, and of course, you know, back then they were. It took a long time to get there and and travel there because not only did you have to go across the ocean, but you had to then, you know take a caravan basically there. So it was a big deal to go over there. And they spent months and sometimes uh, uh, years just learning what the French are doing. And, and you know, in, in the French, in, in the wine culture, in that wine group, in that those era, they all helped each other out. And, and so what they did is they took back a lot of the winemaking kind of techniques. Back then, they used cement vats, basically, where today they use stainless steel, as you know. Um, in the processes. And, you know, it's a very old world, you know, crushing way that they had to physically maneuver the crushes to get the juice out of the grapes and, and then, you know, basically make the wine in these open containers. And, and then they had to move it pretty quickly because they didn't have control mechanisms. You know, the quality of the wine now we're getting today is just absolutely amazing. If you think about it, what technology has done, look what technology has done for the investing world. Look what technology has done for the medical community. All these different areas have greatly been enhanced by technology and the wine making, uh, wine producing uh, countries and, and producers around the world have really benefited from that. So, so back then when they did all that, they took a lot of, you know, technology know-how back to Spain and they implemented primarily it all started in Rioja, oddly enough. Um, that's how Rioja really expanded, which one of is my favorites. Yeah, which is one of the biggest wine regions in all of Spain, too, by the way. And, yeah. and so that that's how that came to pass. And, and it's more of a blended area in Rioja. If I can segue there real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Rioja is fascinating because they really blend a lot of different grapes there, primarily Tempranillo, you know, that's the main grape, 
but it's a lighter fruity, a strawberry, raspberry type of aromas. And they infuse a lot of white wines or white varietals into their wines too. So Rioja has become probably the best known one around the world. That's another one I would you know, reflect upon and try different, different winemakers out of Rioja because there's, there's literally hundreds of great wines made out of Rioja. Yeah, I mean, one that I, you introduced me to is is uh, Muga, which I, I've first time I had it was with you. I've seen it in at least by us a lot of you know, your your average wine store, but that's that's one that I know is um, pretty high quality. I mean, every time I have it, it's it's pretty consistent, very good Rioja. So I I don't know if you have any other maybe uh, producers to introduce our audience to that style of wine, but I know that's one that you've introduced me to. Yeah. Um, Muga is probably more of the affordable wine that, that we import into our country. Artadi is another one that, that I would suggest people try. Vega Cecilia is, is another one. Oh, Vega delicious. Cecilia is, is a, is an incredible wine and they have different, you know, levels also, you know, when you get into the higher price wines, guys, you know, you're talking, hundreds, if not a thousand dollars a bottle, even in Spain, um, there, there's a lot of producing dollar really. Yeah, but that's it. everywhere. That's everywhere in the world. You get that higher quality wine. Yeah. You can pay top dollar for it. Yeah, but Muga, I mean, anybody could enjoy a bottle of Muga. I mean, even the lower end Muga is good. I think it's, yeah. it's got so much depth to it and character and everything. Um, when you get into the higher price ones, you're into Vegas, Cecilia's Unico, which is their top level one. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but Pingus is another high level producer out of there. You've probably heard of that. Um, yep. there, there's literally hundreds of different winemakers, but I would say those, those are the main ones, but, but our toddy, Michael would be the one I would say that would be another one I'd like you to try. Yeah. I think, I think Moog is a great story of how, how they, how they make their wine. It's fascinating because it's a 500 year old vineyard from what, what I've read and they have, basically two vats that are next to each other and under and there's a picture in, on their website there's a gentleman that cracks eggs i know it's interesting you know this and the whites go one way the yolks go the other way but the whites go to the to the vat and what it does it filters the the the, the wine making process where it takes all the all the stuff that's in the wine because the the egg whites are, it's heavy and it pushes all down to the bottom. And actually, they think it flavors the wine as well. And they've been doing that for 500 years. So it's, a, it's an interesting process. Anybody who's interested, read about how they make their wine. But, but I'll tell you what, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's about three or four levels of Muga itself. Um, the Toro Muga, the Prada Muga, they're all you know, pretty affordable, even at, even at, at their quality, quality levels. I think Prada Muga is like $60 a bottle. And in retrospect, that's really not a real expensive wine that that you can compare it to, but it's there. It, the flavor is spectacular on that wine. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, Tori Muga is one of my favorites. I, yeah. I, I love that. You know that that process you're talking about is called fining. So a lot of times, what they'll do is they'll use a filter out in California and they'll run the wine through a filter, basically to filter out the fine particles as much right. as possible. And then a lot of other um, producers will not even fine it at all. They'll just let it settle to the bottom and take the wine off and, and, you know, keep it in its original form without trying to do that. But the egg whites was, was a, a technique that they developed over, you know, three, 400 years ago that they've used all along. And, 
It, it's quite fascinating. I, I think it does impart a flavor to it. It gives it a natural characteristic of its own. So it enhances it to, to some degree. But, yeah. but Rioja to me is, that, that's the quintessential area. But my favorite is Ribera del Duero. And, and it's southwest of Rioja. It's a higher elevation. They make primarily red wines, mostly Tempranillo. I mean, I would say most of them are like 100%. That's where Vegas Cecilia is and other great producers. But there's something about that altitude and the, and the in the terroir there that are magical to me. I mean, you get that sweet cherry yet dry kind of finish and, and it's a big wine yet it's, it's not overpowering, but it's still got all the tannins and structure, but low acidity. So you really get the fruit forward kind of flavor out of the wine. So if, if, if you go out and try one region, I know you, everybody's seen Rioja, but try some Ribera del Duero wines and um, producers that you, and you can look up, you know, on the internet and, and do a couple of searches and find some ones and try different ones that you like, maybe in your price point. But I, I would suggest uh, Vega Sicilia from there. Um, you know, that's just one of my favorite wines that produced many, many levels. And you can get some very good quality red wine out of Vega Sicilia wines in Ribera de Duro. Yeah. I, one of my favorites also is Cleo. You and I have had a bottle of that along the way. That's one of my yep. favorite. That's more of a cab style, if I'm not, if I'm, if I'm correct. Right. Um, but it's a, it's a very, very good wine. Again, in a, in a very, very good price range. So there are, to your point, there's a lot of good quality wines in Spain. There's a lot of them. <laughs> so you have to do your research. But generally speaking, just as a country, it has, it has wonderful wines. And if you're not, if, again, if you're not familiar with Spain, uh, on the wine side, dare yourself, go out on the limb and try some different reds and whites. I think you'll be pleased. Um, Tim, talk about pairing of, of the Spanish wines. You and I have always had uh, interesting conversation about where that where certain wines fit with with food. So where would you where would you have a Tempranillo wine or a Roja or or some of these other quality wines? Where, where would you what would you uh, pair them with food wise? You know, I think they're so versatile. Really, when you think about Tempranillo and, and and it's just it's just it's powerful, subtle, you know, and, and sweet kind of flavor. I think it'd go with like um, chorizos and, and 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 you know, if you think about the food in in various countries and then the wines, they, they tend to get the food around the wines. The wines tend, you know, it's funny how the how the, um, the the chefs in all these different regions evolve into, you know how how they how they prepare their their food and what wines in those regions actually are more inclined to go with those kind of foods. It's empanadas and and uh, you know the the tempranillos will hold up I think to any kind of peppers, um, you know which you know they tend to be a spicy kind of cuisine in spain and so i i would challenge everybody to try some tempranillo type of base to wines real hot ribero de duero um some toros which i'll talk about in a minute but uh, i i i really think they would go with anything on a spicy level john anything with uh, a lot of powerful uh, flavor to it yeah remember my brother um the story with my brother he was always a Pinot Grigio drink, uh, wine lover. He loved Pinot Grigio. And when I introduced him to red wine, he said, nah, I don't like red wine. So I made him um, Mussels Marinara and I paired it with Muga. 
and he almost fell off the chair. Just, just a matching of uh, to your spice to your conversation to the spicy side because that's what my uh, muscles marinara is a little bit spicy, and it just paired perfectly. He, he was never the same after that, as you know. Now he has a a pretty decent wine cellar and he loves red wine. So it's an well, interesting he, story. He, he's never been the same for a long time. I know, that's true. Eric, I don't know about you, but I think we need to wrap this up as I'm getting a little hungry. <laughs> listening <laughs> yeah. to all this. I'm waiting so for the catering this to around lunchtime. This is a bad decision. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so, so let me, let me just hit a couple other regions that I think uh, the, the listeners should pay attention to. One is called Priorat. Priorat is a small area. It's a higher altitude, and they're more attuned to like Rhone wines, if you're familiar with Grenache and Syrah and all that. So Carignan, um, Priorat really is a more of a blended region and, and offers some outstanding wines. And, and again, a lot of different choices up there. Just you can do some searches on those. But Toro is another area. It's pro- predominantly um, uh, Tempranillo-based but um, it's just northwest of the top part of uh, uh, northwest of Spain. It's a top part of Portugal. And again, you know, Toro the Bull. So they're going to be big, powerful wines. If you want something like the, the close to a California cab or something that's big, you might want to try a Toro wine. Um, and then the, the other region I want to touch on real quick is Cava. Uh, it's kind of a northeast of Barcelona, and it's primarily sparkling wines. You probably have had some guys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, you know, they, they, they make wines in the traditional champagne method. And again, they, they learn these from going over to, to France and coming back. So they use a secondary fermentation in the bottle and uh, really make some interesting, interesting sparkling wines now that go with, uh, I, I love champagnes or sparkling wines with uh, mussels and and uh, shrimp and, and, you know, all kinds of seafood. I just think it, it blows it out of the water. And there's some great, great buys out of those kind of areas. Yeah, I, I just, again, I, I just go back to there. It's a region that a lot of people are not familiar with. And I fell in love with that region. And I probably, I probably have uh, leaned more towards the Spanish selection in the afternoon with a, with a, with a but bunch of cheese and just sitting on the on the on the back porch. I tendency to lean more towards that type of wine and that style. Uh, but I, again, it's a quality country, quality wines, and it blends very well to your point to a lot of different um, uh, pairing of food. Um, I haven't had a a, a bottle a, a bottle of Spanish wine that didn't match with any food that I've poured it with. So it's a, it's a, it's a it's a great country. I know that uh, they they there's always a story around corks plastic corks to real cork. I know when I was in Spain and Portugal to Portugal, we, we look at all the cork trees. Uh, there's a story going around that cork trees have a, have some type of a virus or a bug and they're, they're losing their, their uh, strength of the quality of the cork. Is that, is that something I know it's a little off topic, but I found it fascinating. We had a good conversation when I was over there that they, they're really fighting the plastic cork world. Um, but again, yeah. They have yeah. to go where they have to go. So what's so what's the story on that? Do you know? Yeah. So you know, cork demand is up because just the amount of of wine that's being produced, and they just can't meet the market. You know, and and the other problem is it's a you know it's a live tree, so it's a it's susceptible to insects and other kind of damage and and you know weather basically. And the cork tree takes so much time before you can actually harvest the cork. 
in between, you know, so they peel out the outside, as you know, and then from that, they take the cork. So, so it's, it's a challenge in the industry. I think the traditionalists like me, I will fight plastic corks forever. Just I'd rather, I'd, have, like, yeah. <laughs> I'd rather have that 5% risk of, uh, of, of, of what, what is called, uh, you know, the tainted wine, a cork wine, and it's not cork exactly. It's a TCA that gets on the, the cork itself in the winery and, and it gives that wine a kind of a cardboard taste. And, and that's a problem, but I, I like the cork, you know, it's, I'm married to the cork. <laughs> Way to go. Way to go. Hey, Tim, real quick, before we end today, um, I, I went to Porto with Michael and went to the port side of the house. And it was fascinating when you, when you read about port wines and how they store them. Uh, we were, uh, I think it was Taylor Port, Michael, I think it was. We mm -hmm. went to their cellar and they had these barrels of port wine that was there since the 1800s. I'm going, how can you do that? I mean, doesn't doesn't it go bad? Well, they was they were teaching us that that port is stored in mahogany barrels, and mahogany a doesn't change the flavor of the of the of the port itself, and it prolongs the quality of the wine forever. And and the and the older it is, the more expensive it is. Am I correct, Tim? Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, and all the alcohol, you know, <laughs> alcohol yeah. they put in that stuff. You can't drink a bottle of port like you can a bottle of uh, of tempranillo. You know, I mean it. It'll humble you because you'll have a headache the next morning. You think you got the COVID or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it is much stronger. I remember when we went over there, you know, that it's a, typically an overnight flight from the East Coast where we are. So by the time we got there, that was the first thing that we did. I think as soon as we landed was go drink port. It was, uh, it, <laughs> I, I right slept up. all night Not a good idea. on planes. <laughs> so yeah, that was, I was pretty exhausted. And then I had to go drink port, which is, you know, hey, it could be worse. Right. But um, yeah, that was uh, the next day was <laughs> a little bit of a challenge. Yeah, Tim, talk a little bit about the port port wines, just just a little bit, because I, I I find them too sweet for me, but a lot of people like them. So to, so, so to tell the audience a little, a little bit about that that that. Uh, I mean, that, that, this is really a subject for another uh, podcast, honestly, because it's so there's so much goes into it. But you know, again, back in back when Portugal succeeded from. From Spain, you know, they like I said earlier, they're trying to develop their own processes and ways of getting their product across the ocean. And so, what they came up with was uh, fortifying it, basically adding alcohol to it. And so, you prolong the life of the wine that way. And so, they could put it in the barrels, you know, in the in the bottom of these ships and ship it over there. And in Madeira, by the way, is probably one of the most interesting stories. We'll get into another podcast. That back in the 1800s, all the aristocrats out of the out of the America you know, out of the U.S. actually that's what the drink was to show off your wealth, and that's how they they are actually when you hear about how they make Madeira, you just kind of spin your head around going, how did they think of that? You know, be, but it's a fortified wine basically that's heated up, and it I've seen I've got a bottle of Madeira, a couple bottles in my cellar that are from the mid 1800s that are supposed to be spectacular. And, you know, they're $1,000, $1,500 a bottle just for the, the baseline producers. The higher-end ones go up much higher than that. But but anyway, that that whole region in Portugal and what developed there with Port Madeira and fortified wines. And now they're starting to make, Michael, I think you pointed it out the last time we talked about this, was they're starting to make really good dry wines just, mm -hmm. just to compete with, you know, the Spanish and French and Italian wines. So, yeah, that's interesting. 
So, so yeah, I mean, it, it, John, I find it intriguing how that all kind of came about when you, when you talk about history, uh, the different political influences, the, the economic influences, all these things develop. And you can almost draw a line, you know, down a piece of paper and, you know, and, and put all the, the kind of conditions that existed back then and economically, politically, you know, all the local kind of things that they were fighting and, and, and wars and, and yet wine succeeded everything. It, it, it always amazed me how the, the financial side of it too, you know, actually just, just kept developing and, and they found ways to, to get their product across to different countries all over the world. Amazing. Story. Hey, Tim, listen, this is, this is great today. We, you know, we're running a little short on time going around the world with you at wines is always a fascinating conversation. I look forward to our next podcast to uh, enjoy another country and their quality of wines. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about Australia next time, or maybe um, Chile. Cause I was, a lot of folks ask questions about uh, are those good wines. So we'll, 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 we'll talk about that at the, at the next the conversation. And maybe we can set up another podcast talk about another country and their quality of wines. So Sounds Tim, great. I wanted to thank you again for your time. You're always, you're always a gentleman and we appreciate your, your, uh, your, your conversation. Yeah. It was a pleasure, Tim. Thanks. Yeah. Likewise guys enjoyed it. Uh, and we'll catch up soon. We'll drink, drink a glass of wine for me tonight. I'll be, I'll drink <laughs> too. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds like a plan. Um, uh, now, now Tim has me worried about cork futures. I'm not sure how that works, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's another podcast as well. Guys, thank you so much for this, Tim. Of course, it's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm so glad the guys brought you back. Gentlemen, uh, great stuff. I, I love it. I know the audience loves it. It's just a, a fun podcast to have. So thank you so much for bringing Tim back on. And of course, our last thank you goes to you, the listening audience. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast with John and Michael Paris. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when John and Michael come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it really easy to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Copper Beach Financial Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Truth About Wealth podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Copper Beach Financial Group. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. This material is for informational purposes only. Neither APFS nor its representatives provide tax, legal, or accounting advice. Please consult your own tax, legal, or accounting professional before making any decisions. Copper Beach is not affiliated with American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Securities offered through American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc., a member of FINRA SIPC, Investment Advisory and Financial Planning Services offered through American Portfolio Advisors, Inc., an SCC Registered Investment Advisor. These opinions are subject to change at any time without notice. Any comments or postings are provided for informational purposes only and do not constitute an offer or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or other financial instruments. Readers should conduct their own review and exercise judgment prior to investing. Investments are not guaranteed, involve risk, and may result in a loss of principal. Past performance does not guarantee future results. 
Investments are not suitable for all type of investors. Copper Beach is an unaffiliated entity of American Portfolios Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolios Advisors, Inc. Any opinion expressed in this forum is not the opinions of American Portfolio Financial Services, Inc. and American Portfolio Advisors, Inc. and have not been reviewed by the firm for completeness or accuracy.